The Vision app is the best place to find a growing range of on-demand audio for the whole family. Your kids or grandkids can listen to the popular radio drama Adventures in Odyssey and two-minute Bible stories called Quick Sticks whenever it suits you. Whether you're in the car for a few minutes or for a longer trip, these two programs will keep the kids entertained. New episodes are added every weekday in the free Vision Christian Media app. If you don't already have the app on your smartphone or tablet, download it now from vision.org.au slash app. Vision.org.au slash app. Vision. Life, culture and current events from a biblical perspective. 2020 on Vision. Well, later this month on the 26th of June, that's just a couple of weeks away, It'll be the International Day Against Drug Abuse and Illicit Trafficking. So in preparation for that day and the sorts of conversation you'll hear in the mainstream media, uh, this conversation today about what we are not being told about Australia's drug epidemic. We'll talk about the sanitised terms that are being used to normalise drug use. We'll talk about the real agenda of many policymakers and we'll identify who is and who isn't allowed to contribute to the public discourse about Australia's drug epidemic. Or you might like to have your own contribution around some of those sorts of issues. We'll also unpack a a whole bunch of developments, you know, things like alarming new trends in drugs being accessed on the dark web, the opioid crisis, now all about synthetic drugs and polydrug use. We may touch on things like chemsex as a rising trend where illicit drugs are increasingly being used to enhance pleasure. And we'll talk all sorts of the usual type topics about marijuana use and medicinal marijuana. Well, you might like to join in our conversation. I've probably got your attention. If you have had some sort of history of drug use or if you, like most people, know someone in your family who is caught up in drug abuse. Well, our special guest over this next hour is Shane Varco. He is executive director at Dalgano Institute, a coalition of alcohol and drug educators and always a welcome guest as we speak into the drug issues in Australia. Shane Varco, a special welcome back to 2020. Well, it's good to be back, Neil. Thanks for having me yet again. I appreciate that. Uh, well, Shane, you've always got such great insights, so I love to be able to talk through these issues with you. And some of the things that we talk about are complicated issues. And uh, your opinions, i got to say, I hold with great respect and they hold tremendous weight. And I know that uh, listeners and uh, those who can remember conversations we might have had before will hold the same thing. Let's start this conversation, Shane, getting a little bit of a context here, because oftentimes we talk about the drug epidemic, and for some people that's something that's happening in someone else's family. But uh, when we talk drugs and alcohol, all of these in the mix, an epidemic proportion in Australia, uh, give us some insight into uh, how we get a context for what's going on in Australia. Well, that's a big question, and uh, I'm trying to give a synoptic answer, and that space is pretty, a pretty difficult thing to do in the context of where we are right now. But look, you're, the word epidemic is one of those words that's used uh, by people, depending on which side of the debate you're on, uh, you're either used pejoratively or you know to to enhance or embellish 
But to, to actually say that we've got some serious, serious problems uh, that are being either glossed over or when it suits certain parties to uh, then focus upon and then find that the answer to that epidemic is legalising. <laughs> I mean, it's like, okay, uh, so it is depending on who's on which side of the debate you're on and what you're trying to do with that agenda. But look, for example, just in uh, South East Queensland late last year or middle of last year, they, the police there set up a specific task force to deal with um, ICE and particularly ICE use with other drugs in southeast Queensland, um, particularly the Gold Coast, Brisbane area, Sunshine Coast, because of the amount of young people being caught up um, in marijuana and ICE, particularly because they're using marijuana and lacing marijuana with ICE to bring them into the ICE space. So they've actually set up a specific task force, which was publicly uh, brought, to, brought to the table, but it's sort of glossed over pretty quickly. But you, you've got to be really concerned when... When a state says, you know what, well, we need to start focusing on you know, stopping this because 11 year olds and 10 year olds, which all states have had this experience, but this is becoming a real problem. That's just one. Of course, the ACT uh, had their inquiry, as the ACT does, into uh, legalising cannabis for personal use. And again, the federal one that we were involved with last year, it, it fell over, and um, the federal um, attempt to, to change the regulation on that. Northern Territory one fell over as well. The ACT who did theirs, and of course, it's already a decriminalised space in the ACT. And of course, drug use is you know, a real problem in that space and alcohol misuse is a major problem in the ACT. Yet their solution is to legalise after the recommendations. They're thinking, well, of the submissions that were handed in, we think it's probably a good idea to legalise uh, marijuana for personal use in the ACT. Again, it's these permission models. That's what I want to really bring to the fore. It's this ongoing permission model that's increasing the epidemic problem we have because young people particularly are seeing the grown-ups not caring about legislation, not caring about, uh, the, feel like, the rules and what's best practice. And if the grown-ups are doing it and they're pushing it, then what's wrong with kids doing it? And, of course, some of those same grown-ups will say, oh, no, kids shouldn't use it, but, hey, wait till you're 18, wink, wink, then start. And so that modelling is a real problem, and that permission modelling is now so endemic in our, in our culture because we've had this de facto decriminalisation that young people are doing it more and more. Of course, you have a self-fulfilling prophecy. You know, well, people are using it, we might as well legalise it. And of course, that's only going to make things exponentially worse. But that conversation is difficult to have in the current climate. So, Shane, if we're talking about how the epidemic looks, and I know, as you say, uh, this is a huge issue to bring in a nutshell uh, but when we talk about the alcohol uh, issues, uh, you know, there are people who say, well, that's, you know, contained or uh, or it's expanding. Uh, you've got, as you say, the marijuana issues, uh, opioids, uh, the, these sorts of uh, when we talk about dimensions, uh, when you've got prescription drugs, uh, yep. all sorts of just uh, these sorts of things all together uh, is the sort of thing we're talking about today. Of course, and I think that's that's a real issue because we, it, there's different layers across the, across the culture. And it's interesting when uh, the the pro drug uh, liberalisers want to promote the idea that you know let's let it off the chain. For example, they might say they'll, they'll quote a statistic say 46% of Australians have used drugs. What they don't say is 46% of Australians have either used an illegal drug or misused an over the counter medicine at least once in their lifetime. So that's the, the stat that that comes out of. It's like some other stats that are thrown around on other issues, these wonderful one-liner memes that have become entrenched in culture. People, the, the war on drugs example has failed. It's just such a mantra now. It, there's no evidence for that because we've never had a war on drugs in this country. We've, we've had that conversation previously. But these statements continue to be thrown around. But in reality, um, it, the perception is, is, is 
so becoming so pervasive that people are now stepping into that space more readily, whereas even five years ago they were a bit more reticent about actually having a look at drugs. And of course, with the advent of uh, the and the misnomer of the new version of medicinal marijuana, has also added another layer of of permission to the to the debate that says, well, it's obviously medicine, and and kids will buy that. Um, that mantra pretty quickly, and so are the middle middle aged people. They're sort of fifty to sorry forty five to sixty five demographic. They're the ones taking out cannabis more and more, uh, as opposed to alcohol, all along with alcohol, because they're told that it's medicinal has has therapeutic properties, and and whether science says so or not doesn't matter. And, and in fact, I had a conversation just recently about a, a pro drug a pro cannabis user who rang me up after a, a an article we did in the in the, the Herald Sundown here in Victoria that he went railed against me for for my comments and then he told me over the phone that for example the science has got it wrong <laughs> uh, yeah. i mean this is this is the statement you get from drug users you know science has got it wrong you know uh, i'm perfectly okay and then he went on to tell me what in in a disjointed and fragmented way how cannabis has really changed his life and i won't begin to talk about the conversation we had because it was just quite stark disjointed and as you would imagine from a, a drug user but the concern that i have in this space is that um, the the epidemic is only being added to by these permission models, and any dissenting voice is is slowly being excised from the debate because that's uh, impeding the manufactured consensus of drug use normalisation, which is so desperately being promoted by certain and very small but very powerful demographics in the culture. Okay, so you've got voices being silenced in the debate. Sounds like a lot of other conversations I have on this Correct. program. But uh, you've got people taking sides in the debate, uh, those who are lobbying for a legalisation, and uh, a lot of our conversation, no doubt, will revolve around that today. And, and of course, there are those who are against and uh, that'll be you and your team and uh, no doubt uh, most of the people who perhaps are listening in carefully to this conversation today. Then they've got, there are those, Shane, who might be the armchair mm. spectator, uh, yeah. not really much idea, not really, you know, maybe forming an opinion but not really a conviction where they'll actually be bold enough to come out with a conviction that says, uh, no, uh, the permission model doesn't work. Uh, what do you think of uh, of those who perhaps are in that category right now, forming an opinion but not yet really holding a conviction about these sorts of issues when it comes to uh, drugs and uh, drug abuse and the drug epidemic in Australia? Yeah, again, they're the target group, particularly of the pro-drug lobby. Um, obviously, they, obviously, people on our side of the debate, we're aware of what's going on and how it's working and what the harms that are being done to the community and to particularly families and individuals. Uh, so we're, we're, we're a lost cause in their eyes. But it's the, you're right, it's the the... the uninformed masses and this is why uh, you know back in 1979 when uh, the head of normal uh, national organization for the reform of marijuana laws made a very public statement on video and uh, which we have and we've circulated and he's on record as saying the best way to get recreational marijuana use in everybody's hands for all people to use is through the medical model once we could convince people quote that this is uh, a medicine then recreation door will open very quickly so, again, the idea is what you do, the uninformed masses, the average Joe, and even those who uh, hate drugs but are, that are dealing with people on drugs, and they are genuine harm reductionists. They want to see their loved one not die and their loved one get well, and they want to see you know, mechanisms that don't necessarily criminalise their, their loved one or, uh, you know, or and, and at the same time buy into the narrative that 
and, and the bad guys come in behind that and they say, yeah, we want to keep your young people alive, your family member alive. So therefore, if we do A, B and C, we get pill testing, injecting rooms, uh, needle syringe programs, and all these other programs which have got value if they're done correctly, but once they're hijacked by the normalisation mechanism, then all of a sudden it's no longer about exiting drug use, it's about sustained and ongoing drug use and adding to that self-fulfilling prophecy that we'll see everyone's doing it, you can't change it, let's just legalise it and make it easier. So that's how the, the, the manufactured consensus works in this space. I mean, there's a lot more mechanisms behind the scenes going on than that. But in the public, in the public discourse, if you like, uh, so much um, as far as policy is concerned, it's very clear what the, the, the mandate for the national drug strategy is. You know, the first pillar is demand reduction. The second pillar is supply reduction, my highest priorities. And the third pillar, and a good pillar, is harm reduction, which is supposed to be about keeping those who are caught in the tyranny of addiction um, in, a, in a safer place and in assisting them to exit drug use. Now, that last thing's been excised from the whole process. There's next to no, uh, you know, in, from those mechanisms such as injecting rooms. And you, you ask about referrals. You ask about referrals that lead to re rehabilitation. And it's almost non-existent. You look at, ask for the data. And even if they do have referrals, it's your piece of paper, the number, if you feel like giving someone a call, give them a call. Now, I'm all for helping people stay alive. And also, with, uh, for example, with opioid substitute treatments, which are helping to attempt to help people exit opioid misuse. Again, the, the exit and sunset, exit strategy and sunset clause on those has also been excised. So now we've got people that are methadone or opioid substitute treatments and end up becoming poly drug users because they continue to use other substances for up to 25 years. So they're, they're swapping out an illegal drug for a legal drug, which is causing almost as much harm because there is no exiting of drug use. Again, because the messaging that's coming through, and this is what's powerful, Neil. And your viewers need to hear this. The messaging is really, really clever, and it's really powerful in terms like a uh, uh, phrase in in the terms of inevitability. This can't be done, so therefore, and then we throw in compassion clauses, which we're all for compassion. But compassion always insists on transformation, never simply on servicing a brokenness that continues to maintain its own fragility and its own disease. It can't do that. That's not compassion. That's even not even barely pity. And so we've got a concern where people are buying into the debate and saying, well, this is okay, it's medicine, this is helping people stay alive. It can't be that bad. And, of course, behind the scenes, more and more young people are stepping in, uh, not because they have tyranny of addiction, but because they're led to believe that this is kind of normal behaviour. This is what you do. And at the end of the day, if it goes pear-shaped, there's always possibly a way out. You're not going to get in trouble from the police. There is no real uh, legislative framework that's going to hold you account for this. So all these things are starting to mount. And, of course, use and introduction to use continues to grow. But you're not hearing those conversations in the media. That's the, that's the concern we have. Well, I did say in the introduction, uh, just two weeks out uh, from what is known as the International Day Against Drug Abuse and Illicit traffic, uh, Trafficking, that's coming up on the 26th of June. Correct. And uh, as we are two weeks out, uh, this whole conversation really could be about preparing for what we're likely to see in those conversations in mainstream media. Uh, that will show some of these terms that you're talking about, inevitability or the compassion uh, factor here. Uh, these are sanitised terms uh, that you're saying uh, actually normalise drug use and uh, just getting the terminology wrong actually leads us in a wrong direction. 
Well, I think, I think it's important. Those terms are correct terms. They're very important terms. Compassion is vital. Harm reduction is a good pillar in the national drug system. We've never argued that. But it's how it's interpreted and how it's implemented and how it's exercised. That's the trick. So you can still have the, oh, no, we're just, this is what we're doing. We keep people alive. But underneath, the mechanism has been hijacked by people who are not necessarily against drugs who, in fact, want drug use. And, and what's interesting in the, the upcoming um, UN Day on this, their theme for this year is let's develop our lives, our communities, and our identities without drugs. Now, that's the United Nations, the United Nations Office of Drugs and Crime. That's their mandate. That's, and the national international drug conventions are very clear. Drug use is dangerous. It's harmful for the community on so many levels. Nations, GDP, right down to personal health issues and harms to families and broken families. It's just horrendous what drugs do. And no, one, no drug addict starts out going with the desire and, and the longing to be a family-disrupting, uh, culture-destroying drug user. That's not their agenda. It's just, I'm just having a bit of fun because it's okay and, and I'm not gonna, it's not going to be a problem and, and everyone's doing it. And so these are the memes that keep being fed into the system. And even though on top you've got this kind of uh, legal and policy framework that says, oh, you know, we, we want to do this and this and this. But now the pro-drug lobby have just come out point blank and said, well, look, okay, again, the same old mantra, war on drugs has failed, blah, blah, blah. We've not had a war on drugs in this country again since 1985. We stopped our war on drugs. And there's not been a war on drugs internationally either. And, and our latest DVD it goes into the history of the war on drugs and how it took nearly 100 years to get drugs out of the currency of trade. Um, the, so that's another issue. But the key issue here for us is that people are listening and they're listening to what's going on. And is the policy interpretation and is the policy use, is it enabling, endorsing uh, or empowering drug use or is it remediating, facilitating recovery from and reducing drug use? They're simple, simple matrix you look at. So how is this policy being used? Is the person in the middle of this harm reduction mechanism or the policy use framework mechanism, are they... Are they seeing their drug use endorsed, enabled, enhanced, equipped, or are they actually reducing, remediating from or recovering from drug use? So that's a simple matrix. You just apply that to every scenario. And if the outcome is not the latter, then you've got to ask a question about the policy uh, capability because it's supposed to be about keeping off drugs and getting people out of drugs, not endorsing and growing drug use. And again, I quote the UN theme for this year, let's develop our lives, our communities and our identities without drugs. That's important. This is 2020 with Neil Johnson, helping you make sense of life, culture and current events from a biblical perspective. 2020 on Vision. 1-800-316-316. If you'd like to join in our conversation, uh, what we're not being told about Australia's drug epidemic. And uh, Shane Varco is our special guest. He's executive director at Dalgano Institute, a coalition of alcohol and drug educators. And uh, lots of people all of a sudden responding to our call. Let's take some calls, Shane. This will direct where sure. our conversation's going. Let's hear from John in Melbourne in Victoria. Hello, John. Welcome. Neil, haven't spoken to you for a while. John, it is a little while. Yes, yes. Now, can you do me a favour, Neil? Uh, can you what's... not hang up on me if I speak? Because sometimes <laughs> you've had a tendency to cut people off. Okay, well, I, and, and, I can tell you, one... John... Uh, Let's get your most your most important point out first, and uh, and then yeah, we'll uh, we'll see where we go. There's lots of people trying to get through. Yeah, really great. Just quickly, I think 
Um, I, I understand where you get... Oh, I can't remember the guest's name. What was his name again? Uh, Shane. Shane, sorry. Yep. Just, uh, yeah, John. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he's, uh, he's got great intentions, and I, I, I can understand what he's doing. But what people are failing to realise is that this, the culture, it's an... It's no longer a Christian culture we're living in. This is a, it's a very secular society, and um, you've got a whole cultures now that's swimming in drugs. And the problem you've got is you can't keep anyone honest in, this, um, in the drug industry. You can't keep the police, the, the enforcement honest. There's too much money to be made from drugs. There is such a good lifestyle that people are having on it. And unfortunately, you're like a voice in the wilderness out there, and that... Unfortunately, also, the government doesn't help the situation because it keeps these people, gives them free welfare, they get unlimited ambulance service, they get unlimited help. There's no consequences to these people. These people do whatever they want, and, and, they, and, they, and the law can't deal with them because, obviously, in Shepparton, there's a courtroom, apparently, that's like five, six levels for drugs. The whole, the whole Shepparton is just 80% of them are doing drugs there, what the hell? There's not much work around. These people are bored. I don't know how you're going to solve this issue. It's a massive issue. It's not a. We're not talking about a little issue. You're talking about an issue where you can't keep anyone honest in it because the lifestyle is so great. Um, there are people running around with guns, obviously. For, for the John, guns. you are actually making a fair bit of common sense here, I think. And yeah. I think yeah. that Shane, if you're responding Thanks, here to John, uh, who's making a lot yeah. of points. Uh, this idea of culture is important here and the culture of drugs. And I like what John says. You know, people are swimming in this drug culture right now. Uh, your response for John? Oh, look, exactly. What's interesting, as the more John spoke about it, and, and I agree, I'm, we, you know, as I said, we're not here to talk about Christian culture or not, but you, you, this is, we're not coming from a religious perspective here. This is purely from a, this is from a UN perspective. This is from a humanity and dignity perspective. Uh, and the very thing that, you know, as he continued to unfold his commentary, I, I don't disagree with him. In fact, I've got an anecdote from Shepparton, which I will share. But um, he, um, he talks about, you know, swimming in drugs and young people are bored. And again, starts to buy into the resiliency factor. So what is generating this? And we now know anthropologically, not sociologically, but anthropologically, very important distinction, that uh, this is the most bored generation that's ever lived on the planet, bar none, but it's the most entertained generation that's lived on the planet, bar none. So it's fascinating to write that anthropologists tell us that boredom's got nothing to do with the lack of entertainment and everything to do with the lack of meaning. This is the profound. So when you disconnect from a sustainable meaning, then what you deal with is it within a matrix. This is purely anthropologically speaking. Within a matrix of, of self-indulgence or whatever, whatever makes me feel okay, for whatever reason I need to feel okay, I will engage so what happens is people start to, to look for their board, and they, once they take a drug, and they do have a good experience with that, that becomes their benchmark. And now we know from the science, when a developing brain takes the, the drug, and I haven't got time to go into the, the science of this, it's like an atom bomb, a nuclear device going off in their cells as well as their brain, and that wow moment so arrests the amygdala and hippocampus of the brain that it becomes so entrenched. And that's, that becomes the, the emotional slash sensational moment that then by all other moments are rated by that's why it's so important to keep young people particularly away from drugs up to the age of 25 to 28 because of the developing brain factor now when he starts talking about you know once you get their lifestyle it's rich and people have got guns we've seen that in colorado even though they've legalized everything over there the cartels are now running more outlets both publicly and privately than ever before 
And the crime in Colorado is escalating. Even though drugs are no longer illegal, crime rates, uh, major crimes, acquisitional crimes and violence crimes are increasing because drug use is increasing. And once people are on psychotropic toxins, their behaviour changes. And people sitting at home smoking on a joint or sucking on a bong, you know, all of a sudden they're going to be, you know, the model citizens is not the case. And John was unfolding that as he's going. You've got guns, you've got violence, you've got... And on it goes. And so the answer to that is legalize the drug the answer to that is let's have more of that the answer to that is let's not ask hard questions of our dysfunctional culture the answer to that is let's not investigate what's happening and i'll give you that anecdote from shep and i spoke to a major politician some years ago and they were all for four five seven visas and bringing in people from outside to work in the shepparton region and i'm and this is a staggering quote and i said but his unemployment here is high he says we can't get locals to fill any of the jobs. One, they, they, they don't finish school. This is a quote. They won't finish school or they fail drug tests. And employers cannot have drug users working, particularly in some industries, because their, their capacity and their abilities are impaired. And because you know, all drugs have a residual impact on, on, on different parts of the body, particularly the psychological functioning. So they, they can't employ local people because of drug use and not finishing school. So again, by legalising drugs, we increase the permission again, saying, hey, have at it, guys. This is normal behaviour. Just keep going at it. And there is no mechanism for transition because we refuse to look at the bigger issues around culture, around resiliency, around meta-narratives, around values, all those things that are important for human beings to be just that, human beings. Let's take a call from Justin, who's been waiting patiently. Hello, Justin. Welcome along. Hey, Justin. Oh, hi. Thanks. Thanks for taking my call. Good morning, Shane. Good morning. Justin, morning. what are your thoughts? Oh, look, you know, like this whole legalisation thing, you know, like you've only got to look at Colorado 2014, you know, the great experiment of uh, marijuana legalisation and, and, and the problems that, you know, uh, I'm a professional um, health worker. Um, and the chronic problems that you're now seeing in Colorado with uh, what they call chronic hyperemesis, where it's uh, people that just continuously uh, vomit and are nauseous and throw up and, and they can't stop it. This is from uh, uh, yep. cannabis use, yep. um, which, is, which, is, you know, which is terrible. The other thing that, you know, the politicians and a lot of people need to wake up to in the state of Colorado... Um, the latest peer review research found that cannabis-related emergency department visits for psychiatric problems from marijuana use has increased fivefold, yep. which is just a staggering statistic. And fatal car crashes uh, since 2014 due to marijuana use has doubled. Yep. Justin, okay. those are amazing, and yep. uh, they're the earth-shattering well figures. Yep. Uh, let's get a, a thought or two here, Shane, yep. on those well, figures. Just, that just, Justin, that's scary stuff. I'm glad he brought that up because, I mean, one thing, I, I, I wrote an article and submitted a press release earlier this week about uh, the uh, increasing road tolls across the country, but particularly in Victoria came out, and also in, in Queensland and New South Wales. And, uh, of course, certainly using devices while driving was a key factor, but also illicit drugs are now a, a, a huge factor. I mean, it was glossed over. So the people against drink, dry, drink and drug driving, which we're affiliated with, we did a press release on their behalf, quoting many of those stats that Justin's just quoted. But in the radio release, it was just talked about, you know, legalising marijuana is absurd because it's going to create more, you know, can create more road accidents. Didn't quote any of that data. Um, and, and that's a concern we have. It's like the data that's actually in play right now, 
we got live real-time data that's showing the absolute absurdity and insanity of what it does when you unleash, and that's what you're doing, unleashing a psychotropic toxin through legislation. This is what's going to happen. And you know, we've got enough trouble with alcohol because it's a legal drug. We want to add more to that regimen of legal substances. And this is what's happening. Justin's hit the nail here, and I can give you reams of data. In fact, on our website, uh, delgadoinstitute.org.au, under Cannabis Conundrum and under Cannabis as Medicine and under Cannabis Library, there is about a fraction, and we're talking hundreds, of, literally hundreds of articles there, but it's a fraction of the data in play right now of the harms of cannabis. And we, we have this constant narrative in the media that this is kind of an inevitable and harmless substance. But we also have people that we know that have um, the hyperemesis as well, and, and the shocking shocking impact it does have it's uh and so again thanks justin for that input but i could bang on all day about that we'll move on to the next call <laughs> good on you justin from bunbury in wa uh, thanks for being patient and waiting on and uh, there's a number of calls who've been very patient let's take another one rosemary is in melbourne hello rosemary welcome oh good morning neil wonderful to hear from you rosemary, hey, rosemary. it's been a little while uh, what are your thoughts for our conversation today um well first of all i'm thinking of um God, Jesus, and people said to him, why are you having a meal with tax collectors and sinners? And he said, I would have a meal with anybody who made me welcome. I'm thinking of somebody I see just down the road from where, whose home is at the car park. And um, so that's their home at the moment, and um, a methadone now, not heroin. Yep. And um, yep. God gives people different personalities, but we can always talk to him. And um, how many friends do you have? Also, I'm realising through vision and, and through God, it's about being a friend too. Selfless like God rather than selfish. Rosemary, you are bringing to the fore something very mm. important here when we talk about our response, and that is uh, this caution that we have while we're talking about all of these bad things that happen to people who are abusing drugs, uh, that we're cautious not to demonise the person who really is very vulnerable and in significant need. Uh, let's get a response here from Absolutely. Shane. Shane, your thoughts for Rosemary? And look, this is one of the most difficult conversations to have because we're not talking about what's needed for those who are caught in the tyranny of addiction, as I mentioned earlier. We want to see as all caring human being, regardless of religious faith or background, any caring human being wants to see a person trapped in this tyranny, and it is a tyranny, to exit that space and become uh, a whole again, again, without drugs. Again, the United Nations theme. Let's develop our lives, our communities, and identities without drugs. So we want to help those people exit those drug, um, that drug use space. The concern we have is that the mechanisms that are in play to help them exit drug use to recover have been hijacked by certain parties, which is concerning. And all of a sudden, the needle and, needle and syringe exchange program is now needle and syringe distribution. There's no accountability. There's no comeback. There's no recommendation for and facilitation of moving into a drug use exiting space. The methadone program, is there a sunset clause on that? Two months, three months? No. There's no. It's just as long as you keep wanting to use it, you use it. And we're seeing that being hijacked by unscrupulous people to again normalise the drug use. Our question is, do we care enough about these people to help them exit drug use, which means befriending them and whatnot. But our biggest concern, let's get back one, because that's also a, a great 
narrative that the pro-drug, sadly, the pro-drug activists, not the genuine, caring, harm reductionist who wants to see people off drugs. We're talking about the pro-drug, the guys who really want drugs unleashed, legalized across the country. They will hijack, and I've heard them do it in public, they will hijack compassion narratives to do just that. We don't want to stigmatize the drug use. We're not, we're not talking about that. We're talking about stopping people getting to that space. No one starts life as a methadone addict. No one starts life as a heroin mainliner. No one starts life using meth. They are introduced to it somewhere, and the permission model for introduction to drug use in this country is before 44. The data's clear. 44 to 72% of initial drug use is done either through a friend or curiosity. Now, curiosity and, and, and the friend giving it to you are both enhanced and enlarged and empowered by a permission narrative that says, hey, no one's going to worry about this. Try it, man. It's good. I'm doing it. It's okay. Sure, you, sometimes you have a down, but it's okay. Have a crack. And as your wonderful lady said, Rosemary said, or Rose said, um, they, they have different personalities, and drugs, like people, are idiosyncratic. One person has a, uh, a pill at a, at a rock festival, and they have a downer. Another pill person has a pill and they go, oh, that was fun, but felt sick for three days after. Another person had a pill and said nothing happened to them. Another person had the same pill and dies from it because you can't test for individuality in that space. And the concern we have is that we've got this constant narrative saying experimentation is fine. It's going to be part of life. So again, another narrative is heaped on top of the other existing narratives to increase the normalization messaging. And what we're saying is that person in that car park wouldn't exist if drugs didn't exist. Almost okay. guaranteed. Thank you so much to Rosemary from Melbourne for your call. 1-800-316-316. If you'd like to contribute to our conversation today, let's continue to take some calls. Norman is on the line from Queensland. Hello, Norman. Welcome. Hello. How are you? Very well, Norman. Day, Norman. What are your thoughts? Um, look, I'd like to just have a little counter view. You know, it's very easy to use statistics from the United States and Colorado. I have no idea what they're talking about in that regard. I, I don't bother. But I've known for a long time that marijuana has been, been legal in South Australia and the territories for a number of years. And that's, I think, where you should do your research. You know what I mean? And really, um, a lot of drug use, as opposed to the herb, is really relative to accessibility. If there are hard drugs around, they're a smaller component, they're easily accessible, young people will be direct, directed towards them through the, the social networks. But really to, to, to blame marijuana is highly unfair. And I mean, there's a lot of psychosis and criminality in the world that's not related to drugs and suicide that are people who are oppressed by a poor system of greed and corruption. And to blame it on a harmless herb that I know has been around for a long time, and if it was as bad as it's made out to be, we'd all be on the on the on the brink. You know what I mean? And in the Norman. Bible, there is a reference to marijuana in Genesis. It said, "Take the herbs, the flower of the herb, and the leaf of the herb." And I believe that's a reference to to the herb as an alternative. I think uh, I think some people might say you could be reading something into that, but uh, let's get a response here. Sure, uh, Shane. You know, is Norman making good common sense here? Unfortunately, unfortunately, there's uh, I hear what he's saying. There's a lot of misinformation there. Again, uh, South Australia did decriminalise, and Northern Territory tried to decriminalise uh, substances for a while. They recriminalised them very quickly. WA did the same, particularly with marijuana, because that was the one that everyone seems to think is harmless. I'm not going to get into whatever the narrative and, and, and whatever the, the scriptures talk about. That's, a, that's, that's for other experts to talk about. 
My concern is though that if if it is a if what we now know is cannabis use, if it is the as your your listener believes to be a God created plant and a God given plant then I can tell you right now that the cannabis sativa and cannabis indica that's in play right now has no resemblance to any natural manifestation of cannabis. Cannabis grows naturally. In fact, I think it'd be almost impossible to find a naturally occurring cannabis plant in the world that anyone would want to use. Because a naturally occurring plant, it's because the cannabinoids are in the plant, I won't get into the details of that, there's between 80 and 100 depending on who you talk to. In the science space, there's about 400 different, um, uh, different components to cannabis, very complex plant. But in a natural growing environment, your CBD, one of the cannabinoids called uh, cannabidiol and cannabidiol, the other, another one, uh, actually balances out the THC, which is the, um, the psychotropic, the delta-9 tetrahydrocannabinol, the psychotropic gets you high component of cannabis. So when it's grown naturally, it's almost uh, zero impact. We're looking at, at of course, when, uh, when this gentleman may have started using cannabis, if he is using it, some 35 years ago, he would have been using the 4% THC to 5% THC weed, or even less. Now we're talking minimum starting points of 21% THC, and if you use different vehicles to ingest, uh, vehicles of delivery to ingest the THC component, some of those deliveries can deliver up to 95 96% THC. We're talking an experience of people having have psychotic breaks, and even now on record in Germany, on record as cannabis only, it kills people. This is because I never killed anyone. Cannabis kills people all through, uh, all the time through road accidents, through uh, suicide. In fact, now we know from all the evidence coming out from the major international, and again to debunk, unfortunately, uh, the commentary previously given to us. All the key players in the major terrorist attacks that have been happening globally were either regular cannabis users or were using cannabis prior to detonating their devices. And so this is not an opinion. This is all from autopsies. Cannabis is implicated in this. So it is not the harmless substance that apparently was created how many years ago. This is a completely engineered plant that is now done engineered for one purpose only. And then that's what I'm saying. When it comes to cannabis in southeast Queensland... A lot of uh, dealers are icing a little bit, just a tiny bit of ice, lacing, sorry, a tiny bit of ice into the weed. So it gives a double whammy for the person in, in taking it. And, of course, that kicks in. But any person, and now we know from the science coming out of the U.S., again, it's on our website, it used to be that those with a predisposition for psychosis are likely to get it if they smoke weed young. Now the science is out. A complete, thorough, longevity study says anybody... Any young person under the age of 25 who starts smoking or using marijuana, it doesn't matter if it's smoked, eaten or vaped, is, has the potential of developing psychosis. Everybody is in the boat now. So again, these are signs that you don't hear. And again, this is where the narrative gets skewed because we have a one-dimensional narrative that brings up these so-called positive frameworks or just downplaying the negatives. Uh, and, and these mantras keep being retold. And truth, fact and science are in fact excised from the debate and i would argue along with my colleagues in the u.s and uk that we don't have a war on we've got a war on science right now not a war on drugs we've got a war on science because science is being excised from the debate completely for the purposes of creating a a narrative that says this is harmless this should be illegalized because this is what we now do well i want to thank norman from queensland for a contribution and an alternative opinion is welcome on this program sure. and uh, because Absolutely. norman it's still a valuable contribution to our conversation today thanks so much for being part of it let's take another call robin is on the line from mount morgan hi robin welcome yes hello <clears throat> 
Yes, drugs is just one of the many, many ways, avenues that the devil is using to destroy mankind. I mean, as a psych nurse before, um, I, I knew that link. I could see it. The link between drugs and schizophrenia and other psychoses, um, that's absolutely, and you know, and even um, a Hindu, an ex-Hindu who became a Christian, um, he wrote a book, Death of a Guru. He became a chaplain in a Euro European university and he was astounded when these drug users explained the hallucinations they were having because they were the same demons that he saw in the uh, Hindu trances that he used to be in. And the other thing I wanted to say is that really the bottom line is pain, emotional or physical, is a natural sign that something's wrong. So a person can only postpone dealing with the problem by trying to deaden it. And so that's why people are drawn more and more into those sort of things or any other avenue the devil wants to use um, to, destroy, to destroy them because it only goes downhill. It never solves the problem. Robin, great contribution. Thank you so much for that comment. And uh, do you have a response at all for Robin Chain? Oh, the, uh, the the spirituality side of things. I mean, I, that's that's a conversation for different people. Uh, but certainly, from a, I like the the concept of and in, undoubtedly that any kind of pain delayed is not dealt with. And I think uh, that's that's one of the biggest problems. We've got a, a culture that is irresilient. It doesn't manage emotional, psychological, or physical pain well, and because we have an analgesic um, mantra in our culture that, you know, in fact, you look at the uh, which, which concerns us. We've actually mentioned in our latest DVD resource, "Drug Policy: Prevent, Don't Promote, Changing the Narrative." Is uh, we look at the, uh, the chemist warehouse? I'm sorry, the Panadol ad that said when this 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 is the Panadol ad when pain is gone, life takes its place. It's like okay. Well, what's the subtext of that? Let's reverse the, that, that formula. Okay, I can only experience life if there's no pain. So whatever, you know, that's, that's kind of sewn into subtly almost, you know, hourly on radios and TVs. You know, so, okay, yeah, I, I'm experiencing pain. I'm not supposed to have pain. I'm not supposed to have any pain. And, and if I have pain, I just, I just need to deaden it. I just need to anesthetize it rather than address its cause, its origin, and probably... And, possibly healthier ways to address it and alleviate, remove or manage that pain because and that's where resilience is. A resilient person has the capacity to deal with trauma and difficulty and duress with well-managed problem-solving skills, persistence of will, all founded on a sustainable hope. Now, that is a clear definition of resiliency that we use in our education models. And so when people are in that space, they're more resilient. And sure, pain is awful and we need to manage it. But what's causing it? And let's deal with the cause rather than simply alleviate the symptom. As your, your listeners so rightly put out as an ex-psych nurse, she gets that because it just masks the issue, doesn't address the issue. And once you take the substance out, guess what happens? It comes back twice as hard. So you've got to hit it again. And that's where addiction starts to manifest or dependency, to be kinder. Dependency can start because people say, well... I'm, I'm feeling awful again. I know this works. I'll take this to stop this horrible feeling, regardless of whether I'm dealing with the issue that's causing the feeling or not. And that's a tragedy that our culture is not addressing, and we need to start looking at that. But that means we have to ask harder questions of the culture itself. 
which, again, is another conversation for another day. Uh, thank you so much to Robin. And, yes, that is a significant thing that you say when you connect the spiritual with drug-taking and those hallucinations and even the story that you tell about uh, your uh, contact who had that Hindu background and they those sorts of conversations. We do like to have those on this program can't enlarge on it today. In fact, we're running out of time. I'll have to draw a line under the calls. Thanks so much to everybody who has participated because I want to get a, a significant, uh, uh, just a, a focus here for a few moments, uh, Shane, on this idea of people being blocked out of the public discourse, mm. blocked out of the way that uh, policies are being formed. Uh, people like who who are already have been experiencing these things, recovered addicts, or people who are currently using drugs. These people are not being listened to in the debate, and uh, even some of the people that have called in today. I imagine they're not even welcome to make their policy contribution. Give us some insight here. Things that we're not being told. Yeah, well, it's interesting because. Uh, and there's different reasons why people can't contribute to a debate. So there's a number of factors. We're not going to say there's only one. But what's interesting is that uh, Bordicelli, he was uh, under President uh, uh, Barack Obama in America, Bordicelli was the, what they call the drugs out, in other words, head of their, um, their drug policy implementation in the US. And he made a comment, which I thought was really quite profound. It's on record as saying, we, we're always concerned that the, the ex-drug user is not more involved in the conversation around the legalization debate. Now, according to White, a major research in America, 2012, there's over 26 million, that was 2012, 26 million ex-drug users who have been clean for one year or more in, a, in the U.S. alone. That's 26 million people who have tried drugs for whatever reason, got into drugs, could have been trauma, could have been experimentation, could have been just wanted to be a party animal, whatever, went through it, got addicted, dependent, addicted, then they ex- exited drug use because it was creating a great deal of harm. Other guys who've, who weren't addicted but have left drug use, cannabis use, are Chris Evans, Captain America, uh, Ed Sheeran, he uh, dumped marijuana. He said, they say it made me creative. It didn't. I get more creativity from a cup of tea, and I'm quoting, than cannabis. It actually numbed, numbed me. So there's all these people that are exiting drug use, but their, their conversations aren't allowed. Some of them don't want to talk. But what's fascinating, we're finding, is if you're a current drug user, then you are welcome to come in and speak into the debate about how to better use syringes, how to have more injecting rooms, how to all those things... Uh, which have importance, no doubt, not about how to exit drug use, but how to keep alive and using drug use until such a time as I deem I want to stop, if I ever do. But it becomes a society's responsibility to keep me alive and healthy. And as I continue to ongoing drug use, without impunity, with, uh, with, imp- with impunity, sorry, without recourse for change. And so the legislative framework gives us what we call a judicial educator, enables us to exercise a measure that helps people exit drug use. You take that out, then there is no measurement to, and, and other than uh, where a person decides when they want to. And in the meantime, if they were self-sustaining and paying their own way, it wouldn't be a problem. But as we heard from that other lady, they live in car parks. They, don't, they can't work. They won't work for all sorts of reasons. And therefore, the system has to sustain them as they continue to use drugs. Now, if you're an ex-drug user, we call the recovery alumni, there is an active work to stop those people... F- speaking into the drug debate and actually presenting particularly, if you like, in school space. We don't have anyone working in our space who's an ex-drug user, but others who are, want to speak to students in a good quality educa- um, evidence-based education program, simply because they've used drugs previously and been addicted to drugs, they are, not, they are actively uh, resisted in being involved. 
Now, if that same resistance was done to a person who's currently using drugs, and I'm talking about alcohol, not a problem. You can be an alcohol user, even an alcohol misuser, and still be a drug educator. But if you've been an ex-user, for example, an ex-heroin user or an ex-marijuana user, you're not permitted. No, no, we, we, we yeah. don't want you. And, and they've got evidence that they keep wielding out, which is an echo chamber, about, about why that's not a good idea. And we agree that certainly wielding out an ex-drug user to tell a horror story doesn't work. We know that. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about reducing stigma. We're talking about empowering and exercising incredible use of that person's experience to add value to a holistic resiliency-building alcohol and other drug education program. Now, that's where it becomes a problem. It's saying, hang on, we can talk all day long about how to use drugs more safely, but we're not going to talk about how to stop using drugs and exit drug use. That's a concern I have, and that's a a part of the narrative that's been excised. And our latest DVD resource, uh, again, Drug Policy, uh, Prevent, Don't Promote, Changing the Narrative, a two-DVD set, it's quite involved. And we look at this whole area, what's going on in that space, without accusation, without criticising, just simply explaining what's been happening for the last 50 to 60 years, the last 100 years, when it comes to drug, the war on drugs, well, Shane, how that actually works. I'll point people to sure. how they can get a hold of these resources, and I know sure. you've got a lot of resources people can access on uh, two websites I'll give. Uh, one is dalganoinstitute.org.au, uh, but I know that people can get a regular uh, subscription-type mailing with the NoBrainer website and uh, nobrainer.org.au. People can sign up there and uh, receive regular updates and uh, get uh, real insights into what's going on with the uh, alcohol and drug space. Uh, Shane Varco is the Executive Director of Dalgano Institute, a coalition of alcohol and drug educators. Shane, uh, great insights as always. Thank you so much for taking some time to share these thoughts with listeners today on 2020. My pleasure, Neil, and thank you to the listeners who phoned in too. Really appreciated their input. It's great. Before you go, thanks for listening. There's lots more great audio on demand, or you can listen to us live at visionradio.org.au. And remember, Vision is listener-supported. Your donation, large or small, will help us continue connecting faith to life for hundreds of thousands of people across Australia and around the world. Learn more or donate today at visionradio.org.au.